So, uh, I don't think there's any connection to this, but last week, if you were here, we were talking about what is the Bible and how did it come to be put together and how do we read it and how do we uh, interpret it, how do we put it into application in our lives, and, and then how do we do that as a group of people, as a church, uh, is, is what I talked about. And one of the things that I said last week was if you were visiting last week and you returned this week, is that we would do all the same things in the exact same order as we normally do. And then I get here, and Dennis starts with a song, and Nathan skips a song just to prove me wrong. That's going to a lot of effort just to make me look silly. Uh, so if you're visiting with us today, last week was normal. This week is chaos. Um, and, and it's funny that, I don't know if you noticed that, but, but I noticed that as we were getting ready for worship. And, and it gets to a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today. The Bible doesn't tell us how we should start our worship service, whether it be with song or a welcome or with, uh, with a prayer or anything else. But we've got a way that we kind of know we do that. Well, how did we decide that? Well, we did that over years kind of through tradition. Um, in a lot of t occasions... Uh, in church, tradition is a bad word. Uh, tradition is not a bad word in and of itself. Um, one thing that's going to come up in many of your houses over the next uh, couple of months uh, is you're going to eat turkey uh, on a certain Thursday in November. That's a tradition, and it's not bad. It's good. Uh, on that day, someone will probably say, what are you thankful for? And you all go around the room and talk about what you're thankful for. Is it because turkey is that good? No. That's why we don't eat it on any other Thursday during the year. <laughs> it's not that good. Um, families that understand this have the really good ham next to it so that you can do obligatory turkey, really good ham. That's how the order of things. Um, if your family doesn't do that, that's okay. It's covered in second opinions. It's in the Bible. It's fine. Um, that's the point of this lesson, right? Uh, those traditions are valuable. Those traditions remind you that gratitude is part of our ordering of life and that when we're grateful, things are better and that we are less anxious and that, that we have gratitude towards God and we remember that he gives us good things. Uh, in a world that's so filled with, with complaint and frustration and anxiety, thanksgiving is part of the cure to that. And so that tradition is incredibly valuable. Um, in next month, there's so many more traditions that lead up towards the Christmas holidays, and those traditions are valuable. Now, the thing is, there are some times that we mix up traditions of the church with what Scripture tells us to do, and, and we get to where we're doing things that we say, listen, if you violate my traditions that are not based in Scripture, you're, out of, you're an outsider and I'm an insider. You're wrong, and I'm right. That's when traditions can become problematic. That's when they become bad. But there are many traditions in the church that are very good, that are very valuable. Good traditions practiced well help to form us and shape us into who we are. Your family uh, growing up had traditions, whether you knew that's what they were or not. Those are healthy and helpful to you in helping you grow up and develop as, as a person. So it's keeping those kind of sorted in the right order that is important. So that being said, uh, last week we talked about the Word of God. And if you weren't here, here's a little bit of what you missed. Uh, is that the Bible is 66 books by over 35 different authors in two sections. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, which is about the church and Christianity and Jesus. 
Um, and, and the Bible is, is a complex and rich library of books that have been given to the church by God so that we can know what he's been up to since the beginning of time when he started everything. And the Bible tells us the story of how he, in the beginning, did this through his people Israel and his promises and covenants with them, and that eventually it was ultimately fulfilled in one of those Israelites named Jesus, who then opened up the invitation to be God's people to everyone who had come to God through him. And all of these stories, written over a thousand years by over 35 different authors, weave this single story through multiple genres, through multiple characters, through multiple centuries, into a single story of what God's been up to in the world. And it's a beautiful story. And even after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and the church is launched, it takes about 300 years before the Bible uh, gets put together in the 66 books we have today. And it got put together because the church understood how valuable these writings were to us having faith. Without these books, we don't have a way to know who God is, what he's been up to, and how we have a role to play in it. Scripture is the, the story of all that God has done and all that God desires to do with his people that choose to be faithful to him. And so if you're a Christian and you're thinking, man, that old book, I don't really care about it. I don't know how you've come to faith. The book is, is so important to telling us what God's been up to and what he wants to do in you and in me. What he wants to do in the world today through our work. We went through briefly uh, what the Bible claims to be from within itself uh, in in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that the Word of God is alive and active, a sword that cuts to the core of us and separates us and reveals what's really in us. In James chapter 1, it says that the Word of God is a mirror. It lets you look into the mirror. You can read God's Word and see your reflection in, this, in the pages of this book. And if you read it, what you're going to see is, man, there are parts of me that are good and of God. There's times if you read this book, you're going to say, oh, no, there are parts of me that I need to change and allow God to transform so that I can look more like Jesus. So I can be more in God's image. So it is a mirror. Uh, Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel, Luke is the, the, has more words in the New Testament than any other author. Uh, and Luke says, here's why I'm sitting down to write you all of this. It's so that you can have greater certainty in what you believe. He says, I'm going to go interview everyone I can. I'm going to read everything I can about this Jesus guy. And I'm going to tell it to you because I think it's the most important story the world has ever been told. And I want to make sure you can be even more certain than you've ever been before about who Jesus was and what he means to the world. Uh, in Psalm 119, in so many different ways, the psalmist praises the word of God and celebrates God's laws as a light to our feet, as a path that we can follow. And in this very poetic psalm, it invites us and reminds us and celebrates that when we follow God's word, we stay on the path. And when you get off the path, there is danger and there is sadness. But when you're on the path, God's word guides you. God's word keeps you safe and gets you where God wants you to go. 
Uh, and I love that because it has the idea, uh, so often we think about Bible study just keeping us still, but if God's word is the light to the path, it's because we're moving and going somewhere. It's an invitation to walk with God and to follow God and to go where he sends us. And there's been a tendency in the past to at times say, uh, if the Bible says it, I believe it, so that settles it. Uh, but last week we talked about how the Bible's really too rich and complex to be that straightforward. I do hope that if something is in the Bible and it is in Scripture and you believe in it, that you're willing to step out on whatever that instruction, teaching, mirror reveals in you or about the world. But a lot of times there's complexity to Scripture and kind of an opportunity for us to go, boy, that's, I don't know, That's that's a tough teaching. The apostles were with Jesus for years and would often, when he would give them a teaching, say, Jesus, who can follow such commands. Who can follow that? They would think that is a hard teaching. Even in the midst of the greatest teacher they'd ever known, the rabbi that was the son of God, they wrestled with the meaning of things. It wasn't always plain to them. There's times he had to teach them things over and over and over again because they struggled to get what he actually meant. Um, My mind's racing through all the funny times the disciples misunderstood Jesus, but I don't want to chase that rabbit. We've got to stay focused so we can get to the end of this like we didn't do last week. There's a a, a tradition in Churches of Christ that's saying that we use this as kind of just a little tool to think about how we use the Bible in the Churches of Christ uh, to read Scripture. And we would say at times, we speak where the Bible speaks and are silent where the Bible is silent. Uh, And that's a helpful thing. Uh, We also have a tradition where we say, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, or in all things, love. And I think that's so helpful because what that does is, is it says, hey, listen, there are some instructions that matter more than others. There are some scriptures that are more core to the the key point of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he did and what it means for us than others are. And it's important that when it comes to those essentials, the core of the gospel of the message about Jesus Christ, we must be committed to what the Bible says, be unapologetic about what the Bible says, and be in unity with one another. And part of that unity is is hard to get to because there's sometimes in the pursuit of that unity, we've got to get to a place where we call people out for being wrong about the essential stuff. And we don't like telling people they're wrong in today's world. Uh, That's okay for you, but it's not for me. That's, I mean, you may not understand that correctly, but but in the essentials, we want to work towards hard-earned unity. Why? Because if you mess up on the essentials, you might be lost. That's what makes them an essential. Well, what if it's really important, uh, but, but won't result in me being lost? Well, then you're still in the grace of Jesus Christ. You're still saved. You're still doing a great job. You might be doing it differently than me. But it's okay because in, in the end, in the end, you and I are going to be together with God for eternity because we got the essentials right. And if you and I are going to be together for eternity and doing things that aren't going to get us lost, then I'm going to have to learn how to put up with how you do it wrong for a long, long, long time. I might as well start now. That's why in non-essentials, there's liberty. It's because there's, there's freedom there. 
there is an opportunity for individuality there. Now, does it just mean we try and get things moved to the non-essentials so that we can do what we want all the time? No. Well, maybe, right? Sometimes. Because Paul has all these instructions about how unity happens. He has instructions like, if you've received any blessing uh, or any good thing from being in Jesus Christ, then make my joy complete by becoming like-minded, by being like Jesus, putting the interest of others ahead of the interest of your own. Well, does that mean I just get to go say, it's non-essential, so I get what I want? No, I've got to consider your interest. So many of, of Paul's instructions on unity are accompanied by humility which means we don't get to just use our freedom to run roughshod all over each other, to bully our way into what we want. It means that, that we really do the work on the, on the stuff that is essential and, and necessary for unity, and that we, in love and community, sort out the non-essentials so that we can figure out how to do this thing. Now, why might we do some of those things? You know, Paul talks on multiple occasions about how he would... Uh, adjust his ministry for the sake of ministering to the culture and context of the people he was ministering to. Paul says, I'm going to become all things to all people so that some might be saved. And there's times that the church needs to say, boy, we've been doing this one way for a long time, but maybe if it's non-essential and there's a way for us to, to change how we're doing things, we need to do that for the sake of some people responding better in our context. That's, that's missionally and biblically good to do. So as, as we kind of work through this, uh, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things love, in all things love. Faith, hope, and love uh, will always exist, but the greatest of these is, is love. And so God calls us to love one another in all situations and in all things. So even when someone is wrong about an essential, do we decide that we're not going to be nice to them anymore? No, we're going to love them. Now that love may take the form of some hard and loving and humble conversations, but we got to do that work. In the non-essentials, do we say, man, you're doing crazy stuff with your liberty. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. Go do your crazy stuff somewhere else. No, we love them. And we figure out what relationship looks like within the liberty that God gives us. Also knowing from Scripture that not everything that is permissible is beneficial. So we need wisdom and discernment in churches to figure out what we do, what we don't do, how we follow Scripture, and how we put all these things into practice. At the end of last week, I introduced you to um, an image, and, and I want to bring that back up. This is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, I don't know that it started with uh, Wesley or that he ever drew a rectangle on a whiteboard, or I know he didn't use a projector because um, it was hundreds of years ago. But he came up with these four things that are all tools that Christians use to interpret Scripture. And I offer this to you not to be like, and so this is now how we're going to read Scripture, but to think, man, Scripture is rich. There is a lot of tools that I use in understanding what God's Word says. And there's different ways to think about this uh, way of reading Scripture. But he uh, had the idea that Scripture is, first and foremost, the Word of God, and that we then, as people of God, try and figure out what it means for us. 
One of Paul's longest letters is from Paul to a church in Rome that was made up of both Jew but predominantly Gentiles. And I believe that that letter has many, many implications for how I understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. But Paul didn't write that letter to me. He didn't write it about me. So I have to do the work of understanding what it is that Paul is saying to Rome and what it means for me and what God wants me to get out of that letter. Now, when I begin doing that work, I'm going to use the reason, the intelligence, the study tools that God has given me and that I have learned and developed throughout my life and that many of you have developed. We are blessed as a church to have many very gifted Bible teachers and Bible students who've put in the work to develop the kind of thinking tools that we need to, to understand uh, what Scripture is telling us. We also have tradition. In Churches of Christ, we don't lean as much on tradition uh, in the way that, that Wesley is talking about, in that um, if we look at something and say, well, the church has done this for 400 years, so that's what we need to do, and Scripture says we should do something else, which one wins for Churches of Christ? Scripture. We believe that Scripture trumps church tradition. And so when we see that Scripture is calling us to do something that tradition has, has been calling us to do something else, we turn the volume up on Scripture and down on tradition. That's our Church of Christ DNA. Uh, that's how we read the Bible. Um, but if we throw out all tradition and ignore all of that, which at times the church has done, we forget the lessons that Christians have learned in the past. We have to every generation uh, solve problems that others maybe solved a generation or two or centuries ago. We lose some of the insight uh, of those who have walked this path before us. Um, experience is another one. Your personal experiences, uh, your emotions, your shared experiences, the stories and testimonies of other people uh, shed light on scripture in ways that are really valuable. Um, Last week, I talked about someone uh, who grew up with an abusive father, and you tell them God is like a father. Their experience colors that in a very different way than someone who had a good and loving father and who knows what that relationship is supposed to be. And so they experience that, that teaching about God as father differently in ways that they may have to unlearn what father means to begin to appreciate God as holy parent. Uh, another way to think about it, is when we read the psalm that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you take a really wealthy person and they read that psalm, their experience says, because God is my shepherd, I've never wanted. He's given me everything I've ever wanted, and I'm thankful and I'm grateful for the blessings that I've received. God's a good and gracious, giving shepherd. Someone in poverty reads that same verse, the Lord is my shepherd, and I want for nothing. And they may say, you know what? I don't have anything, but with God as my shepherd, I experience no lack. I don't need things because God is my shepherd and is enough without the stuff. It's the same verse. It's the same psalmist, but in different ears and different experiences, we can receive that with very, very different interpretations that are both great blessings to the one who hears the word of the Lord. So our experiences do color that. Um, if you're someone that your experiences, you've come out of a, a denomination or a church that talks a lot about everything the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, 
and you read about the, the fruit of the Spirit, you're thinking, man, the Spirit is doing things. It's shaping things. It's transforming things. But if you're someone that grew up in a church that's uh, more in your brain, you get to the fruit of the Spirit, and you're like, well, yeah, but skip to the fruit. What's the character traits that's being there? We need the moral teachings. I need to know how I should be behaving. And, and we focus on different things based on how we grew up with God and the church and others and, and our experiences. So uh, this has, has been helpful for many Christians thinking about how we approach Scripture over the years. They've reimagined it in different ways. What's the next one? I don't remember the order they're in. Um, this is one that is a gross uh, stereotype, but it, I think is really interesting for thinking about how denominations use these tools differently. Um, the danger with stereotypes is that they're overgeneralized. And so if you're looking at this being like, that's not true, you're right. Uh, but I think it's still kind of interesting to think about this. Uh, evangelicals and churches of Christ, at least in terms of how we read scripture, uh, turn the volume up the loudest on that scripture side of the rectangle. We want scripture to be key and foundational to how we think about what is good for us to do as a church and as Christians as we kind of walk through the life of faith together. Um, for those who are kind of charismatics and who are big on the Holy Spirit, um, they are going to be way more, turn the volume up way more on uh, experience, personal testimony and witness. Uh, why? Because God's Spirit did something in me, and that confirms what I believe, and now I can tell you, and you should believe it too. Well, what about if that contradicts Scripture? You know, experience is louder. It doesn't say that they don't care about Scripture, or they don't care about tradition, but the volume is louder for them on that side of things. Uh, Catholics are very high on the tradition side of things. If the church has, has decreed and said that for the last several hundred years, this is our understanding of, uh, of what's going on in the church, they turn the volume up on that. And if you say, but what about what scripture says over here? And they say, well, scripture has been interpreted by tradition and now the church does this. And so it's a different way of thinking about uh, how to choose what churches and Christians uh, do. I'll admit that I didn't fully look down at the bottom one before. And so the liberals are going to be the people that are the real social justice people that are out, that are very missional and that are doing things. And, and they're interpreting things so often through reason and through uh, scholarship and through getting out and, and doing things. And, and so don't think liberals in terms of politics, but think about people that are um, really focused more outside the church than inside the church. They're wanting to go and do and move and shake all these things uh, and so they were thinking that way. They turned the volume up on, on reason. And all of this is not, again, don't get too hung up on this, but I think it illustrates how when a church thinks about these different tools for deciding who we are and what we do, it shapes how we do things in different ways. Uh, go to the next one. Uh, this one is one that I think resonates a lot with Churches of Christ. And the reason is that it kind of says Scripture is the foundation. Scripture is, is the root of the tree of us deciding who we are and what we do. And then upon that, we have uh, kind of the things the church has come to do and found to be helpful and healthy and to produce spiritual and mature Christian adults. We're going to do those things. But if they violate Scripture, you fall off the pyramid, right? It's kind of a fun way to think about it. 
And then we use reason to think about and study and to interpret and to, to do that. Maybe you think those should be different, that's okay. And then our experience is kind of at the top of this. And it's, okay, if our experiences match good study and good practice of being in the church and good understanding of scripture, then that's helpful too. But if your experience takes you outside of scripture, you drop off the side of the pyramid. And so I think this is a helpful way of reimagining how these different things uh, work together. There's one more up here. I just like it because it's funny. Uh, this is like an old Protestant one where someone was like, experience has no part of it. Okay, so this is the age of enlightenment. Experience is nothing. There is scripture, tradition, reason. Your personal thoughts are not part of faith at all. Uh, and if you knock one of the legs of the stool out, uh, you fall over. So that's kind of a fun illustration, but not really. Okay, keep going. Um, how do we read the Bible is the question. Uh, these images are, I hope, kind of make you go, hmm, I hadn't thought about that before. I hadn't thought about how different denominations come to different uh, solutions based on different, you know, turn the volume up on these different tools for thinking about who we are and what we do. Now, uh, who then at church is in charge of interpreting scripture? And this is an interesting question for churches of Christ because there are other denominations and other churches that when it comes time to make a decision about who you are and what you do, what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is scriptural and what is not scriptural, uh, they have a decision-making process that is outside of the congregation. And so for a lot of denominations, they may have a convention or a council uh, where they have delegates that go and they get there and they get together and use the different tools of interpreting scripture and of experience and of tradition and they vote. And they just say, we're going to vote on what this says and what this means. And then we'll tell everyone that sent us here as their delegates what the decision is. And that's the decision-making process. And they're going to use some part of scripture, tradition, experience, and reason to make those decisions. But that's where those decisions are happening. Uh, if you're in the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, there is an official church hierarchy and structure that makes those decisions for you based largely on scripture, a combination of scripture and tradition, highly uh, emphasizing tradition. But in the churches of Christ, we don't have a Vatican city or a pope that says, hey, uh, here's what you're going to start doing from now on because we've decided that over here. And now you say, okay, it's decided that's what we do uh, because that's how those decisions are made in those churches. So what about churches of Christ? And if you don't, uh, if you weren't raised in churches of Christ, I may ask that question and you may be thinking, wait, you guys are like a, a, a group? I thought it was just like a Christian church. Uh, you're right in some sense, right? Churches of Christ are autonomous is what we like to say. And what it means is that every single church of Christ has its own leadership group of servant leaders uh, who God has has put in place to make decisions for the congregation. And so at Northwest, we have ministers, we have uh, deacons, we have elders, uh, and they are put in place based on scripture and the roles that are given to them uh, to make these decisions. But who else makes, I mean, how do we decide what's right or wrong or not? And there's three scriptures I want to look at here briefly that I think inform us a little bit on how we're supposed to, as, as a church, based on scripture, to decide what we do or don't do. 
Uh, one of these is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. It says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's talking to all of us. All of us. You are a, a priesthood. So in the Old Testament, the older part of the Bible with Israel, you have this priesthood of, of, of Levites and of people that were chosen, that wore certain documents so they could go before God and would take God to the people. And that's their role. In the New Testament church, Peter says, all believers are now part of this priesthood. All of you are part of the group that take the world to God and God to the world. All of you should be engaging with and reading scripture and thinking about what that means for you in the life of faith. So we all have a responsibility. But then in, in a, Titus chapter 1, God gave churches some who have a special responsibility for, for kind of making choices about the belief and doctrine and practice of how the church lives out Scripture. And he talks about shepherds here, an elder or a shepherd or uh, some other groups call them the presbyters. It's all the same uh, word, similar title coming from Scripture. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, uh, children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by the sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And so Paul, as he's writing to Titus, he says, listen, I need you to go to Crete. I need you to appoint elders. And here's their job. He gives the criteria. Pick, pick men who are blameless, who are well-respected, who are, are moral and good. And here's what they do. They must encourage others. They hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. They hold firmly to the message it has been taught. They're dedicated to scripture. They're dedicated to doctrine so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And doctrine's a church word for the true teachings of the gospel in the church. He's saying you need shepherds at every congregation whose job is to, to make sure good teaching is happening and that bad teaching is not. And so in a congregation who, that doesn't have conventions or that doesn't have a hierarchy, God has given us at Northwest uh, a group of shepherds who do this work who do this work of constantly going to Scripture and saying, hey, this is good, uh, this is good teaching, and this is bad teaching. And they are the, uh, the shepherds and elders of our congregation. But in addition to that, I'm not one of them, and I teach a lot, right? In addition to that, we have in Ephesians chapter 4, this other instruction that Paul's giving to the church in Ephesus. And he tells them, Christ gave him... Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
So Paul says, listen, yes, everyone is responsible for reading Scripture and, and being a priest in their own way, but also there are special shepherds in the church who have a job of, of teaching good doctrine and teaching in Scripture, but there are also some who are gifted by Jesus himself to lead, to be students of the Word, to be teachers of the Word, to be shepherding pastors and leaders. And, and as he goes through this list of gifts, you can look around this room and think of people that God has gifted in this way, that God has gifted as teachers, as good stewards of his good word to give to us so that as a body of believers, we all grow up to maturity and unity in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we have these three different ways that, that our church thinks about what is good in God's word for us to decide how we live and do Christianity and follow the light and the path to get where God wants us to go. These are the tools we have, the instructions we have to tell us how to do this. And so the question then comes up is if churches of Christ in different places and in different buildings and different families with different elderships and different cultures, are all going through this exercise together, should they look the same? And to some extent, the answer is, well, yeah, they're all using the same source material, right? They're all using the Word of God. They're all using these scriptures about how to understand leadership and put uh, scripture in practice, so they should look similar. At least in essentials, they should be unified but they should also look different too. We would expect that if churches were trying to become all things to all people so that some could be saved and that, that they live in different cultures that have had different experiences, uh, that there would be a difference from one congregation to another if the elders are really doing the work of saying, we wanna get the sound doctrine right, but we wanna be missional and we wanna be growing and we wanna be dynamic and we wanna be relevant to our neighborhood and our communities. We wanna be sorting all of these things out. Uh, the church should, have some variance and variety and richness to it so that, that these differences allow us to be all things to all people so that some might be saved, so that these differences uh, show that we've really empowered the members, those who are spiritually gifted, and the elders to do this leading forward with unity on the essentials and liberty in, in the other stuff and in all things love. And the more we see this working out in, in congregations and churches, the more I think that we can be grateful and thankful that, that God is, through His Spirit, continuing to guide and shape the church, first through Scripture, then also with experience, tradition, and, and our own understanding and study and working together through this. And it's an exciting, for me, adventure to be constantly asking what else is God's word calling us to together? Can we know that we're doing everything right? Uh, you can know that we're not doing everything right. I'll just tell you that. Uh, I, there is a, if you're looking for the perfect church, you're looking for the one that didn't need a savior. And we're a church that needed a savior which means that we acknowledge that we're not a perfect church made of perfect people with a perfect understanding, and we need to keep reading and praying and learning together. 
And it's that invitation to keep reading and learning and praying together that constantly calls us forward into what God is doing in the world. But I do believe that God gave us everything we need in his word to learn what it means to be his people in the world. I do believe that the work of interpreting scripture uh, for our lives and for the church is an ongoing task that is never done. I don't think there's anyone that can close the book and go, that's it, read it, going to live it out, done. It's an ongoing effort of living the word of God in our lives. I believe that God gave churches and this church included in that leaders who do their best to faithfully interpret scripture and then live it out and, and call others to living it out together because we're better together than we are apart. And I believe that when we do this faithfully and to the best of our ability, that God is going to honor that effort. And I believe that when we do that, that God is present in the working out of our understanding of Scripture. And I believe that when we mess up and fall short, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make up for those faults. And this morning, if you're here and you've never responded to the invitation that comes with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross to save us from our sins, if you've never received that gift, the Bible tells us that we do it through faith and we do it through baptism and that we then get on the path and try and live according to Scripture in the best we can by the grace given us by Jesus Christ and the guiding power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to receive that today, come forward right now as we stand and sing. Thy word is a